Hello and welcome to the January 22nd, 2021 edition of Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. My name is Mr. Joe. This is my neighborhood. This is my life. But this is our podcast journey. Welcome to Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another long-lost edition of Mr. Joe's Bipolar Podcast. It is awesome to have everybody here with me today, and of course, it's always wonderful to be out there with you as well. You know, I might have mixed that one up and flip-flopped them around, uh, and I don't care. I'm not editing this at all. This is coming straight from the heart, everybody, because it's been way too long, and you know, rather than get into all the uh, excuses as to why you haven't heard my voice in a long time, well, let's put it this way. Um, well, actually, there's multiple reasons. One, my paranoia has been so out of control as of yet, as of lately, that I, um, I've found it incredibly difficult to even get on here and podcast. That's number one. Um, the unfortunate thing is the paranoia was somewhat combined with a slight bout of depression. And, uh, you know, the combination of the two, unfortunately, does not make it easy to podcast. And then take it a step further, and my uh, my work that I've been currently doing has been uh, more demanding than usual. You know, and it's something that I have not been used to in a long time, including a lot of writing and observing and, you know, reporting and um, new places, new locations, new people, and just completely overwhelmed. And, and then, of course, the moment that I feel as if I'm ready to finally get back into action, I wake up with 102 fever, body aches, chills. And, um, you know, that's just about it. But, of course, what does it do? It prompts me or it actually demands me to go to a doctor immediately to, of course, obtain that COVID test to see if I could return to work. And the uh, COVID test came back negative, And then I, I did go ahead and obviously took that, I believe it's called WADA, PCR? I mean, I've seen the initials probably a thousand times since this pandemic started in terms of that test. And I have no idea what the initials are. I have no idea what the initials mean. And guess what? You you already know the answer. (laughs) I don't care. I don't care at all. But um, there are definitely two different tests the rapid and the other one. Um, You know, I'm going to be quite honest with you. I believe after that second, the PCR, God, I I hope I'm naming this correctly, but the the, uh, second test is, uh, I believe they they possibly scraped a portion of my brain when they went up there and pulled it out. So, which would be really detrimental to all of us because as it is right now, Mr. Joe has a hard time concentrating and speaking and um, remembering. I think we all know that. And I don't know what 
is affecting me so much? Is it the medication? I don't know. Is it the simple fact that me, like so many other people in this world, in this country, uh, in our neighboring countries, are simply suffering because of this stupid pandemic. And, you know, I said it on Facebook, I think it was yesterday, that we all have a story. Everybody has it, you know, bad, so to speak. And, you know, some worse than others, obviously. But we all have a story. Truth be told, the story is getting very, very old. And as somebody who considers themselves to be resilient and quite the man that could overcome a various amount of obstacles, I'm going to tell you right now that over the course of the last few weeks, there's been moments where I say to myself, I've had it. I want to give up. And again, I know it could be worse, but I also know that there are hundreds of thousands of you that are listening right now and saying, holy cow, man, I feel the same way. I have had it. And I am not saying that those of us with a mental illness have it tougher than anybody. I said this last time, and I'll say it again. But we have to, have to understand that those of us that are dealing or living with a mental illness, we have it harder than most. You want to know the people who have it just as hard as us? And unfortunately, if not harder, are those loved ones that don't have a mental illness that have to live with us through this entire pandemic. Because I can't tell you the amount of times that my wife has heard me complain and rant and rave and talk about my sadness and my impatience and my predictions about the future that really make absolutely no sense when you get down to it. Uh, She's sick and tired of it. Because she has her own feelings. She's frustrated. She has to wear a mask, too. We all have to wear masks. You know, so if there's anybody that's equally as disturbed and has really just about had it, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it is most definitely our loved ones who have to deal with our mental illness. Now, with that being said, I am not going to leave us out here in the dust again because I'm going to tell you right now, My stress has increased. My anxiety has increased. And, you know, I bragged for a long time on many, many podcasts on how I have been able to deal with my anxiety without the use of medication, just by simply controlling my thoughts and my mind. Well, guess what? That is over and done with. And yes, I blame it on the pandemic. And no matter how hard I try to tell myself, well, this is just the way of the world now, it doesn't matter. I'm still paranoid. I'm still freaking out about work. I'm still fighting with my ex-wife up until the point that I had a uh, court date yesterday. It's, It's just absolutely unreal. And the God's honest truth as to why I'm fighting with my ex-wife is I have not been paying the full amount of child support because I have not been working full-time. 
And, you know, the, the moment I lost any kind of employment, rather than be some kind of a dirtbag who just decides, you know what, I'm not sending a check this month, I took a few steps. Number one, I immediately called my ex-wife and I said, this is the situation. This is the amount of money I can give you. I've never been a second late uh, with child support or a dime short, and I need you to work with me. And just know that once we all get back on our feet in this horrible day and age, everything will be back to normal. You'll have your money and everything will be fine. Well, she didn't want to hear that. So second step, the moment I got, or moment I lost some of my work, I went and I filed a petition to ask for a temporary reduction in child support till I could get back on my feet. And of course, she retaliated saying that I'm not paying her child support. Um, you know, there, there are men out there, guys, sadly, that are years and years behind in child support. I am behind, uh, I think, I think about $1,000. And I'm behind because I didn't have the money to pay her. So what I did, again, was I went to court. I filed that petition. I have given this woman 25% of every single thing that I've received. And again, the $1,100 kind of just adds up to the amount of money that I've missed over the last few months. Uh, and, and the truth be told, I have been paying her. Normally I pay her monthly, but if I do a little bit of work and uh, you know I get some extra money, I send her a check. Uh, we're getting a couple of extra hundred dollars in uh, unemployment that I'm still able to collect. It doesn't matter how many weeks I get it, whatever it is, I give it to her. I, I want to do the right thing. But, you know, the right thing right now is for everybody to work together and to recognize that this is a very difficult time for everybody. And that doesn't mean that my ex-wife gets to call me and send me emails up until the very day of Christmas, insulting me, cursing me, wishing basically death upon me, wishing jail time upon me. Listen, I'm not going to jail. The judge knows. I pay my child support. We are in a pandemic. I have, and guys, this is the God's honest truth. When you are not employed, when you, let's say, get a reduction in your salary, you need to go to court and file for a modification in your child support because you're no longer required to pay the amount that you are paying. Not that we don't want to. To be honest with you, whatever the amount of money I'm supposed to pay her, I wish I could give her $3,000 more. I, I really do. But you can't give money that you don't have. Which is why I was advised to go to court and immediately file. But instead, we have a woman who threatens jail, who tells me I don't care about my kids, I've placed a burden on them, I don't care if you have to go out and shovel SHIT, you know, you need to pay me and pay us. And, and let me tell you something, it may be not shoveling SHIT, okay, but I have done everything and anything I possibly can to bring that number back up to where 
was supposed to be, because it's not supposed to be that anymore, because no court system in the world would expect a man, or a woman for that matter, to give 100% of their earnings as child support. Do you know my ex-wife has had the audacity to make comments such as my, my current wife should be paying the child support and supporting my children, <laughs> when, when quite honestly, she has been helping me. She really has, I mean, because she considers them to be her children as well. Do you know, and I think I was about to say this before, and of course I lost my train of thought, things have been so inconsistent in terms of money, and although I knew I was not required to pay the full amount, do you guys know that I have withdrawn nearly $6,000 from my retirement account just to pay child support? I, I, I mean, because it's for my kids. But I'm at a point now where I just can no longer give if I don't have it. And let me tell you, the courts understand, the judge understands, we have not lost our jobs because we got fired or because we don't want to work anymore. We lost our jobs because this world has become, I have no other word to use, but disgusting. We live in a disgusting, disgraceful world right now. And I just can't believe that this is what it has come down to. But you know what? I got a disgusting, disgraceful ex-wife who has gone as far to make the comment that, <laughs> you know, my... The payment she receives is based on a salary that I had probably two years ago, which I no longer make. So I'm, I'm, I've been paying her more than I should. Whatever. Do you know that she has had the audacity to say that it doesn't matter if I'm homeless, if I'm working at McDonald's, which there's nothing wrong with working at McDonald's. So I'm, not, I'm not putting that down. But if I was making, let's say, $60,000 less than my normal salary, my ex-wife told me that I should still be paying her the same amount and go live on the street. Th those were her words. And, and you know what? And here's the saddest part of all. If I didn't have two other kids that I also had to take care of equally and a wife that I had to support in conjunction with the fact that she's supporting me, you know what, I'd probably be sleeping out in a cardboard box with no roof over my head, giving every single dime I have to that woman because that's the type of man I am. And no, you don't get a pat on the back for giving child support. No, you don't get a pat on the back for being on time. You don't get a pat on the back for paying it in full. Those are the things that you're supposed to do. But when a woman gets insane over a couple hundred bucks that has not been provided to her simply because I don't have it, that's a problem. When a woman files a petition and goes as far as saying, my ex-husband is supposed to supply the health insurance for our children and does not do so, I have to sit here and say, 
does she actually want to go to jail? I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if, if, if the extent of punishment would, would result in that, but in her official documents, she makes the claim that I don't provide health insurance for my children. <laughs> I have been providing health insurance my entire life to my children. They have never not had health insurance. I don't know where on earth she got this from, but she's suing me for that too. Which is, you know, it's, it's almost like I kind of feel bad of what a moron she's going to look like when we finally, you know, settle this in court. I, I don't know what perjury is or, you know, I'm not too sure if that constitutes lying within a court document in terms of, you know, um, summoning, sending a summons to someone or filing a petition. I don't know, but all I know is she is told the courts that I am willful, willingly, unpurposely not paying her child support just because I don't feel like it and not providing health insurance for my children. I just, it's just baffling to me how a person could make those claims when none of it is true. And it gives me even more anxiety to know that, you know, you all know this feeling when somebody else is lying and you're part of that lie and being accused of something that you know you have not done. Well, I guess part of the paranoia, even though my wife and my loved ones and my families look at me and they say, and my friends, they say, what's wrong with you? They're all lies. Who cares? Get, go to court and, and just take out a piece of paper, which is what I have to do. And show them, uh, here's my letter from my insurance company. I have been insured, as well as our children, for the last 15 years with not one single day in which we didn't have insurance. Just hand them the letter. But yet my sick, paranoid mind tells me that that's not going to be enough. And I'm still going to get in trouble for it. I, I don't know. This is the way that I think. Anyway, but on to bigger and better things. I have two things that we need to discuss. The first one being very brief, um, and it's actually a replication or a, I guess you could say, another form of something that I recently posted on one of my social media sites, and, I, and I'll sum it up real quick. You know, there, there are a certain number of you out there that have provided support to me, like to the point where I cannot even explain. Many, 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 many years ago, my insane, manic mind forced me to go online and start dictating my entire life and the problems that I had with my ex-wife and the accusations that she made on me and the drug abuse that I engaged in and all of those things I posted all over the Internet. And yet people still supported me. They still read my post, and they still were on my side. And you know, and then I deleted everything. Once you, it's amazing because if you, if you have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, or a combination of the two, like me, we will often write things. Forget about saying things. Write things even on social media. We'll use that as an example. And when we write them, when we're manic or hallucinating or in the midst of a psychotic episode. When we start to stabilize, we go back, and it actually looks like another person. There have been times that I've gone back on certain posts, certain uh, 
things that I've written, and I, I do not believe that I have written them. And, I, and I'm not using that as a sarcastic statement, like, oh, I can't believe it, you know, or an exaggeration. I think that's the correct terminology, or either one of them doesn't make sense. But, you know, we often use the phrase, oh, I can't believe it. Well, I mean this legitimately. I can't believe it. If you show it to me, I will look at it and read it and say, no, that's not me. I didn't write it. So get it away because it's not me. But unfortunately it is. So my point being is there have been several, if not hundreds of people out there that not only supported me back then when I was an idiot, but now continue to support me, continue to have my back, continue to be lifelong friends and family that I consider probably the most important things in my life other than my family of children and my wife. I mean, and I'm referring to the podcast family. I am, first and foremost. I, I have to. I really do. I mean, that's, that's where I got to go with this. I mean, that's the most important thing to me right now are my listeners. That's it. And the amazing thing is, Many of my listeners are now people that have discovered who I am, that I either went to college with or I went to high school with, and guess what? I don't care. And I don't mean that in a mean way. What I mean is, at some point, Mr. Joe is going to be revealed to more and more people. No, not maybe not across the world, maybe not in another country, but you know what? More and more people are going to recognize my voice and... and find out who I am and I just don't care I just don't care anymore and I don't care because I have hundreds of fraternity brothers from the past and from the present some of which I don't even know that treat me like an actual blood brother that to this day are still on my side, still keep in touch with me, and still provide me encouragement and support me in every which way possible. And then, of course, we have our college friends that were not in, in my fraternity, who still to this day are with me. And I guess you could uh, say there's a certain group of people going back all the way to high school, that for some reason, no matter how much of a dummy, no matter how many fights I started, no, how many, no, no matter how con conceited and overconfident and what a downright jerk I was, somehow, someway, they have remained with me. Yeah, Mary Jane. <laughs> there it is, okay? That's one. And there are so many others. There are so many others. I mean, uh, honestly, you look at that friend list that I have, which, no, is not five billion like some people have. I, I just, to me, that boggles my mind, you know, how, how a person could have 5,000 friends on Facebook. Do, do you really know them all? But, but, but regardless... Look at my friend list, and 
every person on that friend list that has known me since high school. Every single one of you. Yes. Isolate your name. Say, oh, yeah, I'm Tara. I'm Jen. I'm Mary. I'm Angela. I'm Phil. I'm Anthony. I'm John. I'm Chrissy. There's so many more. But say it to yourself. Say to yourself, wow, that's me and that's who he's referring to. Listen, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that I'm famous and that you've now received a shout out from Mr. Joe. Here's what it means. It means that you've changed somebody's life. That you've impacted somebody in a way that you'll never ever understand. It means that you have stood by somebody's side through the ups and the downs you've never judged no matter how dumb my sentences and statements might have been you always threw a like or a heart out there but again it didn't matter because as much as a jerk as I was back then you treated me great and yet here we are 20 some years later and you still treat me great and I think it's unbelievable. And I'm, I'm, th- and I thank you. I really do. So, oh, yeah. Oh God, am I emotional? I'm an emotional wreck lately, guys. I really am. And yeah, I blame it all on this, uh, this pandemic and this unfortunate mental illness that I have to live with. And it, it, it hasn't been easy. It really has. And again, I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm not. Oh, and I can't forget my my ex coworkers out there. You know who you, you you know exactly who you are. The support. Uh, oh my goodness, it's just unbelievable the support that I have received from people that I worked with. You know, just a year ago, who I haven't seen in months. You know, it's just it's just unbelievable. So, ah, all right. Let me get that off my chest. That's that's done and over with. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty as to why. I'm sorry, I'm adjusting my microphone. I'm trying so desperately. Last, a couple of podcast episodes ago, I was listening to it, just doing a quick review, and I heard all this clicking and banging around, and it just sounded ridiculous, and I'm trying my best to keep still. Nevertheless, I I have received an overwhelming uh, number of supportive emails since I've been back to podcasting. And I, I have to tell you, much of them, a huge number of them, have been related to, whether questioning me or commenting, about the simple fact that I don't talk enough about the stigma of addiction. And you know what? You're right. You're right, because the truth is a lot of times mental health, mental illness goes hand in hand with drug addiction. 
And we all know that phrase, what comes first, the chicken before the egg or whatever. And for so many years, therapists and doctors try to explain to me that, you know, we just never know the answer. Was the person mentally ill first and then sought out drugs to go ahead and fix their brain? So they thought they were fixing their brain or... Is the person such a severe drug addict that they've done extensive damage to their brain and they caused the mental illness? Well, I think it's number one. I don't think number two is really a possibility. I mean, it is possible temporarily, but I believe if you were to lay off the drugs, I believe your mind would eventually come around and recover. But I do think you'd be spending a lifelong battle with addiction and that's it simply put now I mean unless you're really going to town I mean obviously then you could you know cause some damage to your brain but I believe with the proper amount of rest and being uh, clean and sober you know which listen may take years for some and, and it's a continuous cycle which undoubtedly becomes difficult, which then probably leads to things such as anxiety and and stuff like that, which will ultimately, you know, is a mental illness. So here I am completely contradicting myself. I don't know what comes first. In Mr. Joe's life, I know this. I know that somebody who is swinging on a swing in his backyard at five years old with... No, not an imaginary friend, but somebody who I could see and interact with and yell at and be yelled at from. Uh, I, I could go out on a limb and tell you that I had a mental illness before a drug addiction. And Mr. Joe reached for different kinds of substances to help function in life. Many of you don't know. I mean, and it's probably going to surprise many of you, especially those of you who have now discovered my podcast who know me as a as a younger man or, you know, a child growing up. I mean, I lived with schizophrenia my whole life, or at least schizophrenia symptoms. I dealt with voices and hallucinations my entire life. And I ignored them for years and years and eventually you kind of get used to them and you also have the ability to drive them away at certain points depending on the uh, the strength of your mind but unfortunately in the moments of weakness everything starts to come back and and when that happens and you discover something that helps your brain feel normal well Dear God, you best believe you're going to start taking that. A wonderful man, a former supervisor, former CEO of a company who I actually consider to be a mentor to me. Brilliant man, beautiful man, cares about children and autism and just a great businessman. Not everybody likes him. Most people don't. He knows that, but I love him. He's only said one dumb thing to me in his life. And I I can't quote it because I don't remember the exact words, but he made a comment to me 
regarding my podcast and my discussion at some point about cocaine. And I remember his comment was something along the lines is, you know, Joe, you can't go around telling people that you love cocaine. And I thought to myself, and I just wish I could have answered him in the moment, but instead, you know, the, the little the little quiet Mr. Joe who doesn't want to argue with anybody at this stage of my life goes, oh yeah, you're right, you're right, that was so stupid of me. No, no it wasn't, because I can't find a single damn episode in which I said that I loved cocaine. I don't love cocaine. Yeah, listen, you get high. Do you love the feeling of cocaine? Sure. I'm sure many of you would. I'm sure many of you do. I'm sure I did. But we don't love cocaine. There are people out there that use cocaine to party and to have a good time. And then there are people like myself in the past who used certain drugs to help stabilize their mind. And no, it was not the right way to go about it, which is why you ultimately end up suicidal. So, to the man that mentored me, which he will never hear this, no, I don't love cocaine. I actually hate cocaine because it nearly destroyed my life. But your ignorance about the simple fact that engaging in substance abuse and having an addiction is something to hide from the world is absolutely appalling because I'm telling you right now I'm not hiding it anymore I'm going to be proud of the fact that I don't do drugs anymore I'm gonna be proud of that and I don't care what episode you listen to I don't care what episode you play for the world play them all because as you go from episode number one through episode 140, you're going to realize that Mr. Joe has made incredible, tremendous strides throughout my life. And there are millions of others who have followed along with me, not because of me, but alongside of me, and have successfully fought their own demons. And again, not because of me, just possibly on their own. We're out there. But yet there's this stigma of addiction because, you know, most people associate things like cocaine and heroin and all those things with just being destructive and, you know, being a party animal and irresponsible. But it's just not the case. It's just not the case. So, okay, you, you want to convict me about the fact that I had addiction problems 13 years years ago in the years like 2008 and 9 well you know what then I'm guilty I'm guilty but I would much rather you commend me for the fact that it's been 13 years since I've gone down that road but it's important because people would like me to speak about the stigma of addiction and and they've asked me to review my drug history and, and and you know what I'm not thrilled about it but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a few different things here and how addiction regardless of which way or regardless of how you were led down that path 
whether it be through mental illness or simply partying, whatever it might be, I'd like to provide you with some examples of how serious it could be and how it could take over your mind, really. And, and of course, Mr. Joe always uses his personal experience um, in terms of what we have done and what we pretended to be in order to achieve drugs to either continuously maintain that high because we were just drug addicts or continuously try to mend our minds because they're so broken and because we're dealing with a mental illness such as bipolar disorder and we don't understand why the hell we feel up and down and happy and sad so think about this you know I had that cocaine addiction I guess you could say for a period of nine months where I did it for a very long time it was really the first thing that I had discovered that made me feel normal no, not not good, not great, normal. That's what it made me feel, normal. I remember making this statement once before, probably on a podcast, and I actually made it to my drug dealer at the time, which um, resulted in him never, ever dealing with me again. <laughs> I said, you know, I feel like I can't even go walk down my driveway to the mailbox anymore without using a drug because everything seems so difficult without it and that was the last time I heard from him or received a response from him do you know that Mr. Joe was so desperate to feel better in my mind that I would actually and I remember in particular one time that I actually made up a toothache. I made up a toothache and I drove 27 miles to a dentist that I had not seen in two years thinking that I could just stroll on in and get a prescription of painkillers. And let me tell you, the road to that dentist, well, the exit before the dentist, I smacked into a car so hard, it was actually my third accident in a month, which I blame all on extended release of Depakote, which just did not agree with me at all. But I smashed into a car, hit him from behind, totaled my entire car, and you would think to yourself, well, there's your sign, Mr. Joe. Stop where you are. Don't drive another centimeter. No, don't leave your smashed, broken-up car in the middle of the road and run to the dentist office, okay? Like, turn around... And if you believe in God, this is him telling you, get your ass home. What did I do? Called my dad. My dad came, he ran, son, are you okay? I didn't give two craps about the car accident. My response was, dad, my tooth hurts, holding my cheek like a complete fabricated liar. And what happened? I made him drive me to the dentist. I walked in, the receptionist looked at me like I was absolutely insane, which I was. I, I still remember the look on her face. It was almost like that look where, oh, good God, here we go, another one. Meaning, you know, it was right in the midst of probably that opiate 
and a heroin pandemic and she probably said to herself up oh, we got another drug addict strolling in and uh she didn't want to hear it she actually did write me out a prescription for like some strong ibuprofen or advil which i just tore up as i walked out the door and uh deep down inside i believe my dad knew what was going on i really do i don't know if he knew at that particular moment but he knew his son was screwed up man little did he know he'd be cutting me down from a rope or i'm sorry that was my ex-wife pulling me down off a off a stool to prevent me from trying to commit suicide or attempt to commit suicide for the second time just a few months later but you know i have a funny feeling my dad knew what was going on because he lived with a narcissist and in his head, he undoubtedly said, well, look at my wife. She's a maniac. I'm sure my son is too. You know, sadly, I transitioned from the cocaine to the Oxycontin because of a friend of mine who unfortunately told me that it would help. It would help my mind. Never, never informed me about the addiction aspect of it. There was not internet around, or at least I wasn't savvy on it so much back then, where I would, you know, um, go on the internet and investigate the effects of things. So what did I do? My buddy told me, well, he went into my cabinet. He said, look, look what you got. A couple of Vicodins in there. So I followed his instructions, which were, chew these. I said, Chew? That's a little gross. But I took two and I chewed them. And, um, I felt like I had poison ivy all over my body from head to toe. I was itching like a maniac, but for some reason it felt good. And I said, you know what? I went upstairs. I started taking two more and then three more. And then bam, before you know it, um, here I am, six months deep into an Oxycontin problem in which, like a complete dirtbag, low-life loser, I am using, <laughs> get this straight, and I know I've discussed this, I discussed this probably on my Opiates 101, but I'm going to give you a quick refresher. If you have a, a pool, a pool, a swimming pool, the connections for the hoses, well, they have clamps. And I used to walk around or drive around or travel around with a clamp, and what that clamp allowed you to do was one side of it had very sharp edges. So you could actually take the pill and use the clamp and kind of scrape it. And it would turn into a powder form and you would snort it. And what did I do? Well, I followed the advice of so many others and I sought out a Suboxone doctor who literally strung me along for three years and quite honestly embedded the worst addiction that I could have possibly ever dealt with in my entire life. A three-year addiction followed by a 188 withdrawal period of post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Go back to Suboxone 101, listen, and you'll understand. 188 days. Yeah, I, I got to the point where 
and I was on psychiatric meds at this point, and one of the meds that actually has has saved my life, Lamictal, which I'm on now, well, I took it back then, and I had uh, read that it caused a rash, and I used to scratch and itch because of the opiates, and I actually blamed the scratching and the itching on the Lamictal, and I called my doctor, and I said, oh my God, I got this rash, and Lamictal has the uh, ability to cause a deadly rash so of course it was stop that right now get off that and i said up oh, there you go one more med gone so that i could just take an extra oxy that's how the sick brain works man you know we are all ashamed of our past drug use but it's not our fault it's really really not i know that sounds like a cop-out man but please understand this those of you who have engaged in drug use in the past to fix a mental illness, well, you know what? Screw it. I'm even going to say this. Just to party a little bit. It's not our fault. It's not. Either we're trying to fix our brain or we succumb to some peer pressure and we just lived our lives as young adults. So, unfortunately, you're still going to be judged and you're going to still be stereotyped, but... You know what? Honestly, half the world is crazy. <laughs> I actually think that my listeners and myself and the loved ones who support us, well, we're actually all the normal ones to some extent. Even though, believe it or not, the ones that live with us that are not abusing drugs and are not mentally ill, they're, they're oftentimes crazy too <laughs> for dealing with our nonsense. I mean, so really, what is addiction all about? Well, I don't know how to summarize it, but I'm going to say this. I'm going to I'm going to use a quote from a therapist, my very first therapist that I ever had. He was a man. I don't remember his name, but it was the first time that I walked into a therapy room and I and and I really remember putting on an act. I do. I remember walking in there pretending that I was invincible and that nobody could help me and that I'm the only one who could help myself. And, you know, even though I did drugs, I was over that. And Which, of course, none of it was true. But I remember his words to me after I had asked him, well, what is addiction all about? And here's the summary. You get in your car and you're supposed to go home from work but for some reason before you go home your brain tells you go get drugs and meet your drug dealer and then go home because home will be so much better and now you're at a stop sign and all you have to do is make a right hand turn to go home that's it it's right down the road turn right you're home you're out of the, out of the clear or you could go left and go to your drug addict's house and pick up. I'm sorry, drug dealer's house and pick up. And here you are at the stop sign. Do I go right? Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go left? And guess what? Nobody, and I mean nobody on this earth, understands or knows as to why we go left. Nobody. I don't care who you are, nobody knows. I don't know. 
I mean, the simple answer is because I want it, because it feels good. Well, doesn't it feel good to go home and see your family and your kids and, and have a roof over your head and eat a nice hot dinner? Don't those things seem good? But we choose to go left instead of right. And I don't know why, and nobody knows why. It's what the brain decides in the moment is best. And believe me when I tell you, when you have a mental illness, my God, your brain is going to convince you to go left even that much more. So here's what it comes down to. This message is really, honestly, for those of you who are listening right now, who have recently discovered me and are listening because you're not sure and you know you saw the words bipolar maybe you you caught a couple of the names of the episodes that I have produced and you said wow I did that and that's part of who I am and you know maybe maybe this guy can help me or you know help me to understand well here's what I want you to understand if you are still doing drugs and you're still unsure about your mental status, and you still have ups and downs, and you're still fighting with your significant others, and you're still causing a war with your family, and you're still trashing your house, breaking things down, kicking holes in the walls, jumping on cars like a maniac, fighting with every single person that you see, but wondering, should I get help or not? Well, let me tell you, here's your options. Your options are, one, to die. That's your first option, because you're going to die. You're going to die. Or, your other option is to listen to me and recognize that there is something wrong mentally. And you absolutely, 100% cannot fix it on your own. I don't care how hard you try, I don't care how dedicated you are, I don't care what you do, you cannot fix it without help. So if that's the listener that you are, get yourself help. It doesn't get easier, it doesn't get better, and you know what, I forgot the third option. You know what, if you're lucky enough not to die, maybe you'll be lucky enough to end up in jail. How does that sound? And again, you know, we're saying that bipolar is a disorder. And addiction is a disease. So what on earth is the difference between the two of them? They're tied together. So what the hell are you waiting for? Go get help. You know, don't, don't be Mr. Joe back in 2009. Popping Xanax after Xanax after Xanax. Smoking weed after weed after weed sitting in a laundry room, smoking cigarettes and almost burning down an entire house because I couldn't even keep my eyes open as I would fall asleep sitting on top of a washing machine blowing smoke out the side of the house window and then ultimately falling asleep with a cigarette in my hand as it burns my leg only to wake me up to realize that if I had not woken up, the entire house would be burnt down and my family would be dead. Again, listen, these were all relatively short-lived for Mr. Joe, but something that I remember for a really long, long, obviously that 
that I'll remember forever, but they never leave my mind. And it's, it's mainly because it led me. And, and here's, here's where I finally start to feel somewhat sorry for myself. My addictions and my substance abuse and my inability to really take my medications properly once I was clean and sober, well, the unfortunate thing is I ended up on a path of destruction in terms of listening to doctors and psychiatrists who, in my opinion, just didn't care about me. I know it seems hard to believe, but it's true. You know, doctors, they're great for writing out prescriptions, but... I spent four years of my life after that addiction trying med after med. And, and I get it. You know, it's all, it's all trial and error with medication. It is. But for four years, to get into three different car accidents, to fall asleep at the wheel, to, to sleep for hours and hours and hours, and days and days and days because they were trying to control my mania by by basically turning me into a zombie. Giving me medications that, that, that caused me to rise out of my body and observe my actions from afar, like I was watching a movie, and that's called depersonalization disorder. We've talked about it many, many times. No, I wasn't on acid. I was on Cymbalta and Depakote and Seroquel, and Lamictal, and Suboxone, and Xanax, and Wellbutrin, all at the same time. What, what doctor does that to somebody for four years? We want to trust in our doctors. So, what does Mr. Joe do? Well, towards the end of the four years, he decides, I've had enough, I'm not getting better, and guess what? I'm going to stop everything. And instead of weaning off the proper way, Mr. Joe decides one day, oh, you know what, eh, screw it, I'm going to stop Cymbalta. And the end result is probably the worst destruction, even more so than the horrible things that I did when I was a drug addict. The worst behavior, worst destruction, and unfortunately the worst outcome that could have possibly occurred based on me coming off a prescription medication, a, a, a medication prescribed from a doctor. And, and yes, I understand. I didn't, I didn't follow weaning instructions and tapering down. I didn't follow any of them. But, but you know what? And this is not an excuse. Because one or two things would have happened had I have listened to the doctors. One, they would have said, stay on it. And by now, I'd be dead. Or two, they probably would have given me a taper program that was garbage. And I would have ended up the same way I was. Because my God... The first doctor, oh no, the second doctor was it, because me, like a moron, I mean, you know, we did the three years of Suboxone, had 188 days of withdrawal, and then when I started to feel three years later, my mind starting to go crazy again after being off meds, what did I do? I reached for my old prescription of Suboxone and started taking it again. And ultimately getting myself hooked on that again, going from doctor to doctor to doctor, trying to figure out a way to keep this going. And then, 
you know, turning a very long story into short, one in which you could listen to probably on 40% of my episodes, finally bashing my head into a wall so hard that I realized this is it. It's time to get help. And in the end, <laughs> which is why I refer to the doctors and their wonderful, incredible, magical weaning instructions, my doctor telling me to taper off and jump off of Suboxone actually a higher dose than I had done so the first time and had the audacity to tell me I'd be fine and everything would be cool. No no withdrawal. And I looked him in the face and said, are you out of your mind? I mean, really. It took me nearly 200 days to feel even halfway normal again the first time around and you're telling me to come off this medica- medication at a dosage that's two milligrams higher than when I came off the first time. And Suboxone 101, for those of you who are on it, who would like to come off it, please, please, please listen to it. I go through an entire taper program that I developed, one that I came up with. Again, 200 days the first time around. Not a single solitary or barely any withdrawals the second time around you know so so here's what it comes down to here's what it comes down to I hope that those of you who are struggling right now I I hope that you have some kind of support system I really do it'd be great if you have family or friends that are there to support you and you know try to help you to get through this but this is going to sound so cliche and I'm almost kind of hesitant to end the podcast in this way but no matter who you have in your life that's helping you, it, it's all wonderful, and, and, and I think it's great. But in the end, it comes down to one person, simply one person, and that's you. you got to want it. You have to want to get better. The longer you continue to ignore your drug use or drug abuse, your mental illness, your ups and downs, your anxiety, your depression, your obsessive compulsiveness, your paranoia, your psychosis, whatever the heck it might be, the longer you ignore that, if you don't believe in one person, then you're not going to make it. You have to believe then you're simply not going to make it and you're not going to succeed. And that one person is you. If you are living with a mental illness and you're doing well right now, I ask that you continue to work hard. If you love or you care about somebody with a mental illness or drug addiction for that matter, I ask that you continue to support that person in the very best way that you know how. And if you're struggling right now with a mental illness, please, I ask that you continue to fight, continue to battle, and most importantly, soldier on. Thank you so much for listening. I miss you guys so much, and it's so good to be back. Talk to you again soon.